welcome back to Summit's Podcast. Today is a special day because we have possibly kind of the the the, the most fitting guest, most I would fitting. say, <clears throat> when you look at the... Oh, with the name? The name, yeah. uh, the yep. subject matter, the yep. purpose, yep. I would agree. kind of all ties together. I don't want to spoil anything, but... Yeah, I, I think you're right. I'm just saying. You're right. Uh, welcome... Mr. Sean Sean Swarner, sorry, almost botched that one. <laughs> Welcome to the Summits Podcast, sir. Appreciate it, guys. I know, I know it's like a tongue twister right there, but I've I've been used to, you know, I've I've been saying my name for quite a while, so it kind of rolls off the tongue. But yes, Sean Swarner. There you go. <laughs> Sean and I have known each other for a couple of years. Um, again, not not going to take away from any of the story, but Sean was kind enough to join us at the An Evening with Heroes Gala in 2018. Um, came out here to Indy from Colorado and spoke with the uh, the folks in attendance at the gala. Uh, that was a good night. Yep. Uh, I remember that quite well. I've got a little picture there from, from a few years back. We haven't changed a bit. Also <laughs> with our MC there, Ray Cortapassi. Uh, we, 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 we look a, a little bit better, and, and I actually, that was the first time I've ever tied a bow tie. Thank you, Google. Yep. I, every year for the gala, I have to, I have to look it up. I, I, <laughs> I try to, like, take it off and leave it where I can, like, kind of, like, slip it back on so I don't have to try and, like, tie it again. Because it's, it's always, like, my, my wife, whenever I'm trying to tie it, she just, like, leaves the room because it's so frustrating. Yeah, it's not as simple <laughs> as people think. No, it's not. It's not. Oh. Clip-on one should be more... More socially acceptable, in my opinion. Just do, saying. Do what you need to do. Just saying. Do what you need to do, Mr. Clifford. <laughs> All right. Well, Sean and I were connected through a, a mutual acquaintance down in, in Atlanta, the ATL. This time of year called Hotlanta. Um, so, T. Scott, thanks again for that. Um, Sean, what's, uh, we like to start things off with July. Um, here we are, July 2nd today, uh, but this will be released a little bit later is uh, Sarcoma Cancer Awareness Month. Uh, so so with that, we're just going to start pulling that string early. And, and Sean, what is your cancer story? Wow. Well, I guess where, where, where do you want me to begin? Like when mom and dad got together and nine months later I came out? or <laughs> Well, <laughs> maybe fast forward a little through that part. I mean. <laughs> fast forward through, fast forward through that. So... <clears throat> Wow, Third, I'll just I'll just start when I was thirteen, um, and I'll, I'll quickly go through it. Uh, knee a knee injury basically stuck me in the hospital when I was in the eighth grade, and uh, that knee injury basically triggered everything else in my body to go incredibly haywire. And and because of that, uh, they diagnosed me with advanced stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma. So, you know, when you're thirteen years old, you're you're looking at life a little bit differently. Your hormones are kicking in. You're, start, you're starting to grow hair in unusual places on your body. You're, uh, you're at the beginning of your life and you, you think you know everything. You think you're, un, un, uh, uh, you're indestructible. Yep. But uh, I was eventually 60, 70 pounds overweight, bald from head to toe, no friends because you know it's a popularity contest, as we know, going eighth grade, freshman year in high school. And um, I was gonna say no offense, but you know people who are who are bald just aren't aren't too popular. But it's <laughs> <laughs> that seemed like a personal attack. <laughs> wow. But but when you're 13 years old and you you lose your hair, you know you you stick out like a sore thumb. Yeah. You know, and and it was it was devastating. I had no hope. I I had I had no future really. 
but I went through about a year and a half of chemotherapy and, and I was placed back in remission. I had a wonderful, wonderful life, went back to being normal. And then uh, because of the first, well, because of, of the knee injury, they found the first cancer. And because of the first cancer, they found the second cancer, which is, which is kind of crazy if you think about it. Going in for a checkup for the first one is when they found the second cancer. So in, in one day, they found a, a tumor on an x-ray about the size of a golf ball right between my lungs and my ribs. Um, they found a tumor on an x-ray. They did a needle biopsy where they threaded a needle. You know, like it, back then it seemed like a foot long. But it was probably like, I don't know, five inches long. Threaded it between my ribs to aspirate part of the tumor. They removed another lymph node. They put in a Hickman catheter. They snapped open my ribs, took out the tumor, put in a drainage tube, and started chemotherapy in less than one day. Wow. And the reason it was so quick was because the type of cancer I had was just incredibly aggressive. And <clears throat> the prognosis is, is roughly 6%. I'm, I'm sorry, yeah, 6%. So 94 out of 100 people die from this cancer. And it's, it's basically a branch of Ewing sarcoma, which is Askin sarcoma. And no one's ever had Hodgkin's and Askin's before. And to, to my knowledge, they haven't had it since I was diagnosed. Wow. So the first cancer was 13, second cancer was 16. So basically 13 to 18 years old, my entire teen years were robbed from me. Um, I think we have a taking, pick, sorry, I think we have a pick of, uh, of yeah. let's know, is this around the 13 time frame? I would, I would assume. We'll have that pop up here in a sec. Oh, yeah, 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 I'd love to see it. Yeah, that's the first one. So I actually had, and what's going on there is, is it looking looking at that still gives me nightmares. I actually um, I had an allergic reaction to one of the anti nausea medications, oh. and it it rolled my eyeballs back in my head. It was oh, a muscular wow. reaction. My eyeballs fluttered up, and I, I couldn't even see. So I was I was I was blind numerous days going through the treatments wow. because of because of that. But after they figured out what it was. Um, because it, it finally happened going into one of my, um, chemo treatments. And I remember walking down the hallway and it's, my eyeballs started rolling backwards and the doctors finally saw me like that where they had, and what was awful is I was also wearing hard contacts at the time. So my contacts oh, were my eyeballs too. They're up my head. So when I finally sat down, the nurse came in and she's like, I've, I've seen this before. So my mom's like, well, you know, what, what, basically what the hell's going on with my firstborn son? You know, he can't see, he's blind. And she said that it was a muscular reaction created by or caused by one of the anti-nausea medications. And the only reason she knew that was because about two days beforehand, a lady came in with her husband. She was getting treatment. She was on the same thing. And she had a muscular reaction where she couldn't control her tongue. So it was literally darting in and out of her mouth so she couldn't talk but her, her tongue was just going in and out in and out in and out. <laughs> wow. she's like what the hell's going on so they, they gave her a, a mild sedative to help her relax like a muscle relaxant they did the same thing to me and my eyeballs slowly came back down and i could see again and it, when they figured out what it was i stopped taking that medicine and i decided that i, I was not gonna throw up i was not gonna get sick again and i didn't i didn't take any more anti-nautial medicines when I was going through my first treatment, just because I, I decided up here, I was like, I'm done. Yeah. Like, that's, that's enough. So then going in through the, the, that, that going through that second cancer is when I was diagnosed with Askin sarcoma. First time around, they told my parents, your firstborn son has three months to live. 
So I had an expiration date of three months. The second time around, the doctors actually told my parents, now you're, I, I had an expiration date of 14 days. So I was, I remember, I literally remember, and I very vividly remember laying in the hospital bed and a man on the cloth came in, stood at the end of my bed and started reading me my last rites. They wanted to write, they want, the hospital wanted me to write out a living will and put me in hospice. And I remember looking at my mom thinking, because I have a brother who's, who's three years younger than me, thinking about, well, you know, what the hell does a hospital want? It's like, I looked at my mom, like, isn't my brother going to get my hand-me-downs anyhow? Like, what's <laughs> So the, the, the pastor did his thing. We argued with the hospital that I wasn't going to go into hospice, and I, I kept fighting. You know, one step after another and, and finally ended up beating asking sarcoma. But because the treatments were so harsh and no one's ever had those two together before, they don't know what's going to they don't they didn't know what was going to happen. So they stuck me in a medically induced coma for a year. You know, I don't remember being 16. Yeah. And because of, of, of what's happened, I go in once a year for a checkup, even even now, you know, 30 years later. Wow. So so they were so they. But, you know, they, they showed up to kind of read you those rights and have you try and do that living will where they, you still were getting medication and everything on that. They're just kind of had kind of made the decision of what was going to happen, even though. Absolutely. Yeah. They gave up. They're like, this guy's not going to survive. Wow. I assume at 16, you just wanted to prove him wrong then also. Right. Was that, I, I think, yeah, <laughs> I think that's the stubbornness came in. Like, you know, your parents, when you're, when you're younger, you're like, oh, you can't do that. I was like, yeah, watch me. I'm going to make it happen. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow. It's the first time you gave the uh, priest the bird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to hell. That's for sure. Yeah. That's all right. We'll see you there. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So you're in a coma for virtually a year, pretty darn close. Then, then what, like what, what led out of it? Well, you know, I think through, through the treatments, so I went in, you, you guys know how a, 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 um, a cycle works for chemotherapy. So for me, it was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Then I'd be released from the hospital. I would recover, and then I'd go back in Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. That would be like one cycle, one treatment for me. And when I was out of the hospital, I, I looking back at it, I kind of have um, what alcoholics call moment, of, like a moment of clarity. So I kind of have little pieces of, of memories of when I was 16. And what's crazy is even, even when you're in a coma, when, when you're, you're, you're not really remembering what's going on, your brain is still processing the information that it's receiving. And it's still keeping those memories. The issue is the recall of those memories. And the sense of smell is closest linked to memory. And everywhere I go now, I visit local hospitals and share my survivorship story with the patients. And sometimes I'll be I'll be talking to someone who's say 16, 17 years old, getting treatment, you know, getting the IV drip, and I'll smell something that'll trigger a memory. And it's it's almost like PTSD. I'll be I'll be just jolted. And I look at whoever's with me, I'm like, I, I need to go back to the hotel. You know, I, I just need to deal with I need to handle just kind of process what, what's going on. So Looking back at it, what happened after that year, you know, I, I again, one step at a time, I kept building myself back up to where I was because before I was diagnosed when I was 13, I was, I was, a, a, I loved swimming. I was an athlete 
I, I also ran. I, I, I In high school, I was a pole vaulter. I was in the 800. And then a year after I was placed in remission from the second cancer with my, I only have one functioning lung because of the radiation. I forgot to mention that. Oh, right. So with, with you know, small detail, yeah, yeah. with, with <laughs> one, my one lung, a year after I was placed in remission, I actually won my high school's league track meet in the 800 meter run. But it, it, but it wasn't just, hey, you know, crawling eight feet from the hospital bed to the bathroom so I w- didn't soil the sheets to, boom, all of a sudden running two laps around the track and winning the league. It was one step at a time. I walked around the nurse's station. I walked around the hospital. I walked around my, my neighborhood. I started slowly jogging around the neighborhood, just one step at a time, utilizing the compound effect to push myself a little bit more. Wow. Yeah. Attitude and overachieving kind of go hand in hand. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think one of the one of the biggest key factors that that really helped was not comparing myself to others. Mm-hmm. It's, it was comparing myself to where I was yesterday. And I think that was instilled when when I was a swimmer, like when I was five or six years old. You know, my favorite was was a 25 meter breaststroke. I'd swim one lap down the, the pool and mom or dad would always be there to pull me out. And they would also always ask me two questions. One, did you have fun? And two, did you do your best? Not, hey, why, did, why didn't you beat him? Why didn't you beat this guy? It was, did you have fun? And did you do your best? So then every time I got in the pool, I tried to beat the time that I had the last time I was in the water. So they taught me I didn't have to be the best. I had to be my best. Yeah. Yep. And just push myself a little bit and compare myself to myself. I am the bar of my own life. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. So are you, at this point, when you won that track meet, was that what year in high school of that? That was probably 91, 92. Okay, so was that your junior or senior year? That was my, that was my senior, senior year. Senior year, okay. okay. So so then what, uh, where, where did things take you? Well, then I, I went to college, relived my high school years, and turned into Belushi from Animal House. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I mean, I, I was the epitome of a party animal, and I, I started off molecular bio thinking I was going to cure cancer by splicing genes and everything, but it's it's incredibly difficult to pass organic chemistry and immunology if, if you don't open a book. So, <laughs> Minor details. Uh, yeah. yeah. So I, I, I switched to psychology because I, I – I, I knew and I, I firmly believed in the mind-body connection and everything I went through, I wanted to help other people going through cancer because as, as we all know, it's not an individual disease. Every, the whole family goes through it. Yeah. And if you don't have family, it's your doctors, it's your support system, whoever it might be. It's, it's not just you. Yeah. So I wanted to give that back and help other people maybe develop the right perspective, maybe help them with certain tools, tips, whatever it might be. But after college, I went to grad school, and I, I, I couldn't help somebody else until I dealt with what I went through because I, I never stopped to do the the literal and proverbial stare in the mirror of, hey, what 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 did you just go through? What does it mean to you? And because anybody who goes through cancer, anybody who goes through anything traumatic, you have a choice in how you want to come out on the other side. You, know, you, you can look back at it and think, oh, woe is me. I'm such a sad person. Or you can come out and go from tragedy to triumph. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can be the victim or you can be the victor. It's entirely up to you. In any situation, you have a choice on how you want to see what you've been through. And I, I just never, never took the time to do that. I never took the time to actually think about how it impacted my life. 
So that's that's when I decided, all right, well, I'm I'm gonna drop out of grad school because I went to grad school. I was gonna be I was gonna be a psycho oncologist, psychologist for cancer patients. And that's when I was like, okay, well, I, I can't because I haven't helped myself yet. And I can't help others until I help myself. And if I tried to, I'd be doing them an in, in, in injustice. So that's when, uh, looking at your science summits podcast, that's when I came up with a crazy idea of climbing, you know, Mount Everest. It's like, why not use, yeah, yeah that's yeah. logical, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's logical next step, yeah. <laughs> But why not? Why not utilize that as literally the highest platform in the world to to give people hope? So you went straight. I mean, straight to Mount Everest. You were like, "All right, we're not going to stair step our way up to this. That's this is this is what I'm going to do." Um, no, I, I I went from because I went to grad school in Jacksonville, Florida, and I don't know too many mountaineers who live right. Because <laughs> the the actually the, the highest point in Florida is the top of the Four Seasons Hotel in Miami. Right, so, so I don't, I don't think they would appreciate me going up and down the stairwell a thousand times a day. Um, so I moved to Colorado, where I live now, and I did something every day to train, to get my body adjusted to the altitude, to get my mind ready for the summit push, to move over to to go over to Nepal and and go for this this tremendous goal. So I, I literally trained myself to be an alpine climber. What, so I, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to know like what the, the steps were from making that decision to getting to the peak. I'm sure there's, it's quite the, quite the journey, right? It, you know, it was difficult at first because every corporation I approached for sponsorship, they, they all thought I was, I was a joke. Hmm. I mean, if, let's just say I'm approaching you guys and you're, you're some CEOs at a corporation of, of in marketing or something. Like, hey, you know, this 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 is great. This is Sean Swarner. I'm I'm a two-time terminal cancer survivor with one lung, and in ten months I'm gonna go climb Mount Everest. I need your help. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's pretty much what happened. They're like, get out of here, man. Yeah. They didn't think it was they didn't even think it was physiologically possible to climb Everest with one lung. Yeah. So I didn't get any that. And when I first moved moved out here, my office was literally a payphone bank in the library. Like I was living in the back of out of the back of my Honda Civic, and I was camping in a tent for a couple months before I even found sponsorship to go make it happen. Wow. What was the time frame from when you decided you wanted to do this, move to Colorado, to getting to a point where like, okay, this, this things are in motion. This is now going to happen. So when I moved when I moved to Colorado, literally ten months later, I was in Nepal. Wow quick yeah yeah well it, it it's kind of like the same thing as as looking back at the cancers like you're gonna die no i'm not <laughs> like you 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 can't make it to to the top of mount everest yeah i am you know it's, it's just that the whole idea of of anything who anyone who's attempting something that initial thought of of questioning or doubting yourself or the the, the idea of of confidence so whether you think you can or you can't do something, you're absolutely right. You, you have to pay attention to that internal dialogue. And I'm not talking about those crazy voices in your head. You know, ignore those. You know, listen listen to that one-on-one, that little gremlin on your shoulder, how you're talking to yourself. Because 80 to 85% of the day, it's, it's negative thoughts. Mm-hmm. Putting yourself down. Just stop it, man. Turn it around. Build yourself up. Sure. 
putting putting the corporate folks aside that you're trying to get sponsorship from, I assume you also started talking to some you know experienced climbers in Colorado just to kind of start you know educating yourself. What what did they say to you? <laughs> so there's there's a um, a very well known author who wrote a book about the 1996 disaster on Everest, and I won't say who it is, but I'm sure you probably know. Yeah. He said, eight months in Estes Park does not a Himala- does not a Himalayan climber make. Sean won't. Sh- Sean will probably die on the mountain. Most people, most people, even then, they wouldn't even support me because they didn't want the liability. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So take us wow. through that that experience. The the, the experience of, of like dealing with the negativity. Well, not so much that, but just. You know, ten months later, you said you were you were in Nepal. Carry us through that uh, that time. Yeah, getting getting ready to head up. I mean, the um, the the Sherpas, who are the local guides, basically the most amazing climbers that I've ever met in my life. They were actually um, anxious and, and scared to meet me. They thought they were going to see a, a frail, uh, fragile cancer survivor as opposed to someone who'd been training and doing something every day for the past two, 10 months to, to get his body and mind in shape. So when they finally saw me that I was a healthy image of, of a climber, I suppose, um, they, they were happy, obviously. <laughs> they were like, oh, thank God. Um, but when we, when we got to base camp, I actually um, – so I, I – to be able to climb, I purchased a, a permit – with National Geographic. So they were the only people who actually, who believed in what I was doing. And it was through an, uh, an Everest organizer, an expedition company based out of Kathmandu, because no no American companies would even look at me. So I, I went straight to Kathmandu and he was, in org- he was organizing, his name was Wang Chu Sherpa. Wang Chu was organizing through Peak Promotion, um, Nat, no, Nat Geo's trip, and on a permit, you can actually get seven people. So I bought a spot under their permit. They had one open. And <clears throat> we had two separate trips. So we had, they had the National Geographic trip at base camp, and then there was me off to the side. So technically, I was under their permit, but they didn't want to be responsible for me. Okay. And when we were going up and down the mountain, up and down the mountain, they, they saw that I was going with the Sherpas, you know, the same speed as the Sherpas, doing everything the Sherpas were doing. I was hauling my own gear, doing everything that we, we possibly could to help support them because they were the ones who were going to be helped, who were going to be supporting me going up higher in the altitude. So when it came down to it, a couple of the guys from Nat Geo saw that I was actually strong enough to be doing it. And, and there was one guy who said, you know, who told my brother, because he was at base camp, said that if there is a weather window, your brother's going to make it. And I think that's what we were waiting for. We were, just, we were waiting for a weather window after we went up and down the mountain, you know, 15, 20 times. It's, it's insane because we, we arrived at base camp April 8th and I summited May 16th. So a lot of people don't understand oh, wow. how long wow. it takes. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. If, have you ever gone a month and a half without showering? <laughs> I try not to. <laughs> I don't know if I'd want to disclose that if I did. <laughs> but that that's what it's like, sleeping in a tent for a month and a half, showering out of, like, a hot water bowl. 
You, know, you heat up some water in a fire and you you shower do like a, a sits bath almost. Yeah. Wow. So the whole trip, the whole trip just getting over there was was is it was an ordeal. I can imagine. So we're in the middle of May now, and you summit Everest. I can only imagine some of the things that were going through your head at that point in time. Well, yeah, it. I mean, the summit night was just was incredibly beautiful, and and I, I know I mentioned this when we were when we were together for the uh, for the event, but it, I'll never forget it because it was in the middle of the night. We left Camp Four. There were four camps on the south side, um, base camp, and then there were Camp One, Two, Three, and Four. So so creatively named. Um, <laughs> But at at twenty six thousand feet is where we leave to go up to twenty nine thousand. So we only have three thousand vertical feet to go. But because the air is is so thin, here in Colorado, let me let me kind of paint the picture. Here in Colorado, I can do a vertical a thousand vertical feet in forty five minutes to an hour. Okay. Okay. Over there, we only had three thousand vertical feet to go. We left at 10 p.m. I summited at 9:30 a.m. the next morning. Almost, so almost two hours. Yeah, exactly. And it's because every step you take, and it's literally half a step, you sit there and then you breathe 10 or 15, 20, 30 times, and then you take another half step, and then you breathe 15, 20, 30 times. And I'm going up there with with half my lung capacity. And there was there was one moment when we were on the knife on what's called the knife ridge, where it literally drops off three feet to my right side, two miles straight down into Tibet, and a mile and a half on my left side, straight down into Nepal. And I was bouncing up and down because I couldn't feel from my knees to my toes. I was completely numb. I thought I was going to lose both my both my legs to the altitude and, and frostbite. But I remember being at that at that moment where the sun started coming up. So it was probably like five thirty six in the morning. And looking straight out, it was like a sea of clouds with mountain peaks as islands. You know, and it, it was just the most, the most beautiful sunrise was coming up. And I could see looking out when you're that high, the horizon's not flat. Yeah, I could, I could yeah. see the curvature of the earth. Yeah. So then I, I looked over to my left side and straight out, literally without looking up, were stars at eye level. So my head was just going back and forth, you know, the most amazing sunrise on my right side, the stars at eye level over here. And that's when I started tearing up knowing I was going to make it because the entire time I'm climbing, going up and down the mountain, I had a flag that was folded up in my chest pocket close to my heart. That was my purpose, my reason for getting for, for making it to the top. And it had names of people touched by cancer. So when I got to the top, I, I, I collapsed to my knees, put my head in my hands and I, just, I wept like it like an infant pulled that flag out, wrapped it around the top of the world, and I realized that I wasn't the first first cancer survivor to climb Everest. We all were together. Yeah. Wow. Then you so, had to go back down. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the funny part, because climbing is a round-trip sport. Most yeah. people don't realize that. <laughs> Once you got back down... And, uh, you know, took it all in, probably took some time off, perhaps, maybe not. Then what? Then what did you set your sights on? What, 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 what made you decide, okay, that was awesome. Now I'm going to go on to the next thing. Cause there are 
several next things for you. Right. Well, after after Everest, I think I got home. Um, I, I relaxed for a little bit. You know, I I, I lost. 30 pounds in a month and a half. Okay. So I had to put that back on. Um, thank you, beer and pizza. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, uh, um, logically then I, uh, after a while, you know, you, you start to slowly forget the bad parts, you know, all the miserable parts, all the, the, the hurricane force winds, the, the numb fingers and toes, the altitude, the strain, and you start remembering the good parts. And I think that's what I did. And I realized that there's something called the seven summits, which is the highest mountain on every continent. And that's when I decided, okay, well, let's, let's go after that, you know, the next project. And I, I continued on with Kilimanjaro, which is the highest mountain in Africa, which I do every year as a fundraiser for a cancer charity. Um, and I'm leaving, this will be my 21st summit of Kili um, in, a, wow. in a couple of weeks. Kilimanjaro, then Elbrus, the highest mountain in Europe. And then it continued on to... I think it was Aconcagua, which is the highest mountain in South South America. Then Antarctica, no, Australia. And right now where I live in, in Colorado is, I think, 200 feet lower than the highest point in, in Australia. So that one wasn't too difficult. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> then went to Antarctica, then the North Pole, or then um, to uh, Denali up in Alaska. So that was the seven summits. And on each one of those peaks, again, I had a flag that had names of people touched by cancer. You know, whether someone has, has um, while they, if they're currently battling, uh, if they're a survivor, or as we all know, unfortunately, people pass away. And it was also like um, uh, in memory of someone as well. So I've, I've always had a deeper purpose and a deeper meaning for, for everything I'm doing. Right. How long, what was the time span it, it took you to complete all seven summits? I think it was six years because D Denali took me three attempts. I slid 100 feet down a glacier once. Um, my first attempt, we had more snow. The next year, we had more snow in two nights than the Alaska range did all winter. Wow. Um, I woke up and we were buried underneath like 11 feet of snow. Wow. Um, so we had to dig ourselves out. I mean, it was crazy because we would we dug out our little camp site, camp spot, and then we kind of dug a trail to the next tent where we had our avalanche probes looking for tents because it looked it was just covered. Yeah. So we did, and we dug out the other camp spot, and then we dug a trail to the next camp spot, dug out that tent, and if you could look at it from an aerial picture, it was kind of like a cross section of an ant farm. <laughs> right. Yeah. So then I, I finally then I finally summited on my third attempt on Denali. So I think it was six years, and then after that, I, you, I, I did also did the Hawaii Ironman in between there, and I also did the South Pole and the North Pole, and then all that together, the seven summits and the two poles, is something called the Explorers or the Adventures Grand Slam, which I still I didn't name it, but I still think it sounds like a Denny's breakfast platter. <laughs> 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 That's crazy. So I think uh, one of the photos that we have of you uh, is, I think it's from the North Pole, I believe. It's the one with the snow and ice all over you. Um, correct me if I'm wrong when this pops this one up, but I believe that's uh, over oh, yeah. here. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's the North Pole. Going towards the North Pole is probably, I know there's, there's no point of reference because you can't see anything behind me, but I remember exactly when that was taken because there was a, a film company that went up and – if, if you're in, if anyone's interested, it's um, True North, the Sean Swarner story on Amazon Prime. Phenomenal footage. 
But I remember when he took that picture and I was just thinking, that's it. That's going to be the one <laughs> because what you see on my face, that is, that's my breath. That's a humidity from my breath. So when I'm, when I'm moving forward and I'm breathing out, I'm actually walking into the moisture that came from my, my own lungs. And that's just built up over time. And there was one point where, cause it was so cold, it was 80 below. And when I, when I blinked, it was so cold, my eyelashes froze together. I had to pull my right eye open at one point. <laughs> wow. You lost me at 80 below. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so people, people always say, oh, it's cold. I'm like, yeah, cold's a relative term. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I've got to imagine many, you've probably been asked this thousands of times, but you complete the seven summits. What makes you decide, oh, you know what? That wasn't enough. Let's, let's do the Ironman. Let's do both poles. I mean, what, just does it constant drive to do more? Well, I, I think for the Ironman, it was definitely, I remember being in the hospital. Um, I think it was, it was the first cancer. And I remember watching a guy named Mike Pig, who was a triathlete. And I remember he finished the, the Hawaii Ironman because I had a background in running. I had a background in swimming. And I, I promised myself, I was like, if, if I survive, I'm going to finish that race. You know, it's, it's the world championship Ironman triathlon in Hawaii. It's, it's always on the TV. And I got, I actually got a media spot. I didn't qualify for it. Okay. They gave me a media spot and it was my, I did a sprint triathlon, a half Ironman, and then the, the Hawaii Ironman. So I've only done three triathlons in my whole life, but that was, I, I just wanted to do that one just to uh, maybe to prove to myself that I could. Well, it is the, the king daddy of triathlons. Ah, it was it was awesome. Compare comparatively, though, it was it was quite easy compared to everything else. Um, <laughs> you're you're yeah. one of the few that can say that, so I'll, I'll take credit <laughs> yeah. for it. <laughs> well, it's it's different because, as you heard, you know, Everest Everest took a, a month and a half. That took me eleven and a half hours. Sure. I was done. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so with 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 the North and South Poles. There's just something in the in the adventure world called the Explorer's Grand Slam, and I was like, all right, well, let's cap it off and do that. So I guess I'm 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 I'm, I'm out there probably trying to be. I'm trying to give people some hope because oftentimes when people are struggling, they just need that story to maybe hit them and and have them believe, hey, I I can I can get over whatever humps in my way. I can overcome whatever challenges in my way. And maybe if I can plant that seed into people who are struggling right now, my, my life's been worth it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. How many people, I assume they probably keep track of this, but how many people have actually completed the Explorers Grand Slam? I was number, I think, 56. 56 but, if, but, if you, okay. yeah, but if you add in the Hawaii Ironman to it, there's one person in history who's done it. Okay. And is it, is it safe to say of those 56 or you know, maybe it's up to 65 now or whatever the number is that how, how many other, are there any other cancer survivors who have done that? Nope. Okay. No cancer survivors. Cool. Well, one, one cancer survivor. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, awesome. Well, thank you on behalf of all the survivor nation for doing that. Oh, absolutely. Don't I think will not that. be attempting it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you could go up Kilimanjaro with me every well, year. Well, so uh, that's great segue. Yeah. Great yeah. segue. <laughs> so I know we have we have a, another pick here, and you kind of previously mentioned you know your 
Kilimanjaro trips. But yeah, let's talk about today now. What 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 does what does Sean Swarner up to these days? And and uh, talk to us about this trip in particular. Ah, I, <clears throat> that I t- actually took that picture last year. I was one of the very 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 few people to take a group up Kilimanjaro because we were in the middle of the vid. And um, we went over, we were the only people on the mountain, which was just spectacular. So Barafu camp is basically base camp. That's the last camp where you leave to go up for the summit. The summit's behind the, the left on my right head, but left of that picture. Okay, okay. Um, but I'm, I'm leaving again July 20th, I think. And we're heading up the mountain the 25th or something. Um, but this will be my, my 21st attempt on the summit of Kili. So I've been to the summit of the highest mountain on Africa 20 times now. But every year we go, we take a flag, again, that has names of people touched by cancer. And if you go to um, www.kilihope.com, Kili, like Kilimanjaro, K-I-L-I, www.kilihope.com, you can add a name to the flag. And you can donate a dollar and add a thousand names, or you can donate a million dollars and add one name. It doesn't matter. You know, because it's not about the, the, the money, it's about the people. But we do it every year, and the average success rate on the mountain is 48%. So okay. 52 people out of 100 don't even make it. However, my groups are at 98% success rate. Wow. And I, I think it's because we help people tap into their, their personal core values and their underlying meaning. Because when you have that meaning, then you find your purpose, and with that purpose, you have passion. So on the flag, what we do is we print out a list of all the names, and then at each camp, we all take turns writing those names on the flag. And then the survivor that we take take, carries it to the top. So with the Cancer Climber Association, we actually pay for a survivor's trip every year. And then it's it's up to that cancer survivor to raise funds for next year's survivor to go on on the trip. So we're, we're taking two survivors this year. Our goal is to have, with those two people, raise enough to take three next year and then so forth. And I, eventually, I would love to take 15 survivors for free every year. That'd be awesome. Yeah, be yeah what, what is the size of the group that you typically take? Anywhere between six is, is the minimum. I've taken 30 before. Oh, I'll wow. never do it again. Yeah, I'll <laughs> a lot. So we're going to cap it at 15, probably. 15 or 20 tops. Yeah. Because it, it, it's amazing. People revert like they're back in high school. You know, they, they form these little clicks. I'm like, guys, go, you know, talk amongst yourselves. Go mingle. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so you fly over on the 20th. How long is the entire trip? The entire trip. So let's say you wanted to go. You would probably, you would get there the 24th or 25th. I don't have a calendar in front of me. 24th or 25th. Um, we have a day off, head up the mountain the 26th. And then we have seven days on the mountain, come off the mountain, rest that night back in the hotel, and then we actually fly into the Serengeti for a 40 safari. Oh, so the whole cool. trip in and out of the country is about 14 days. Okay. okay. But, you didn't sound like, and, and maybe this, this is my, you know, ignorance to climbing. I didn't hear any, like one day of rest when you get there. So there's no really any altitude acclimation or anything like that. No, we, we, we take our time. So, <clears throat> Kilimanjaro is different than than Everest because it's well. First of all, it's, it's two miles shorter. You know, so <laughs> vertical. It's two miles down. It is nineteen thousand three hundred forty-one, forty-two feet. Um, the first day we we go to the the park gate. Then the, then we hike up to Machami Camp. The next day we go to um, Shira Camp. Then we go to Baranko Camp. Then we go to Karanga Barafu, 
go to Uhuru Peak, which is the summit, and then we go down to either um, uh, Millennium or Mueka Camp, depending on how people are feeling, and then we go out. So it's you summit on the morning of the 6th, we go up and leave the evening of the 5th night, summit on the 6th morning, come back down, and out on the 7th we're back out. And you said the, the summit is 19,000 and change? Yeah, 19,341.42 feet. But we we take our time, and like I said, our success rate is double that of, of the mountain's average. And that mountain average, that, is that is, does weather often come into play with Kilimanjaro, or is it mostly just people tapping out and saying, I can't make it? I, I, I would say it's... Well, first of all, they're, they're on that mountain, and with most mountains, there's no such thing as bad weather, just bad gear. Okay. So I think it's it's because people tap out. They're like, I, I'm, I'm done. Psychologically, they, they can't handle it, or it's the altitude. And how you deal with the altitude up that high is you pay attention to what you do down below. So you, you slowly go up the mountain. And I've, I've utilized the, the same guides, the same porters, the same cooks, the same everything for the past 20 trips up the mountain. And we're no longer treated like clients. We're treated like family. So they would call you guys kaka, which I know in one language means something. But it's, <laughs> I've heard <laughs> that before. <laughs> but in Swahili, it means brother. So okay. they would actually call you brother. And other the females, they call dada, which means sister in Swahili. And their goal isn't to get us up and down the mountain as quickly as possible. Their goal is to have a great time. I mean, we're the only group on the mountain singing, dancing, and having a wonderful time and uh, telling jokes. And I think uh, the summit honestly becomes a byproduct of having fun. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. That's awesome. Yeah. I think he's selling. I know. I think so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if we could record from up there. It might be kind of difficult, but we could try. Our, our engineer behind <laughs> yeah. the scenes has Chris, Chris the facial expression yeah. he has on right now. I was like, I'll show you guys what to do because I won't be there. <laughs> wow. Okay, cool. So this this July 20th, you're heading over. This is the 21st trip. So you're, are you going to do shots at the top of your 21st? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I, I have taken, like, for the North Pole, Johnny Walker um, gave me a bottle of blue, right? And it was engraved, Sean Swanner, best served on ice. I'm like, that's cool. That's very <laughs> cool. Yeah. But oh, a, a quick aside, a side note from that was the night that we were going to bed, getting ready for the morning of like the last seven miles that we knew we were going to make it that next day going up to the North Pole. I brought out, I brought the bottle out of my sled. I looked at it. It was so cold. It was frozen. So <laughs> oh, God. I, I had to take my hand, like extra hand warmers and wrap it in tape around the, the bottle of whiskey. I had to warm the bottle up to drink it. That is crazy. I mean, that shit's got to be like 80 proof at least, yeah. I would think. Yes. Yeah. That's, and it froze. It's that's, cold. Yeah, it's cold. <laughs> so no ice of, needed. Yeah, we, we have a little sip of, of some whiskey or, you know, a beer or whatever, whatever people bring up. Yeah. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. Well, um, I, I mean, that's, I feel so... You know, inadequate at this point in time. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, when you're not climbing Kilimanjaro? Um, what's 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 Sean do in the just an average day? Wow, an average day. Well, I just I just signed a uh, another contract for a, another book, so I have another book coming out probably September. 
Um, it's called uh, The Seven Summits to Success, Conquering Your Everest. And I'm working on another one called Kilimanjaro Into the Self. Um, and then it's going to be based on the seven summits that I've climbed. Um, I put together an online program called the Big Hill Challenge because people have always asked me, um, you know, how, how, have, how have you been able to do what you do? Like, well, uh, thinking about it, it boils down to my personal core values and having that underlying reason and knowing what I value most and putting my energy and attention into that. You know, like, like things like um, family, personal growth, stuff like that. So I, 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 have, I put together a, a, a core values assessment so I can help people discover their personal core values. And then I help them build into those through being mindful, um, utilizing the compound effect, um, triggers, fear, fear and anxiety, things like that. So it's a three-week ongoing challenge called the, the, uh, TheBigHillChallenge.com. It's actually pretty cool. And I've gotten some amazing feedback. One lady said that she accomplished more in three weeks than she did in the past year and a half. Nice. Um, wow. And yeah, well, my, my first question was, well, what have you been doing for the past <laughs> year and a half? <laughs> but she, she told me that she's just been through a lot. I was like, okay, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, and then I'm utilizing uh, Kilimanjaro as an immersive coaching experience for a handful of people and i'm putting that together right now there are a couple of websites that'll be available in about a week so I'm, I'm always looking for something and i i got married two years ago so that's probably the big challenge that that i'm working on now too yeah you're still newlyweds two years come on man <laughs> <laughs> well that's awesome um let's we t typically like to part with this um if you and i'm sure this happens you know, fairly regularly for you, but when you approach uh, folks who have been recently diagnosed, um, what, I won't say words of wisdom, but what, what do you usually instill in newly diagnosed patients? I would say it's, it's, it has to be a sense of hope, you know, hope that, that they're, and I'm, I don't mean like hope that I'm just going to hope that everything's okay. Right. It's, it's understanding and, and hoping that there, there is something better. Because looking back at it, cancer is probably one of the worst things that's ever happened to me, but it's one of the best things that's ever happened to me. Right. You know, because it's given me a perspective that most people will, will never have, you know, on, on life, on relationships, on success. So anybody who just who just recently got diagnosed, you know, look look at what you have in your life. And every night, don't go to bed look focused on what you what you couldn't do, what you can't do, what you're not able to do. Be grateful for everything that you do have, that you can accomplish, that you did do that day. And every night go to bed with, with an attitude of gratitude because it'll change your life. Well said. Yeah. Well said. So are we missing anything? I think we've, we've hit all the seven summits. <laughs> yeah. We've been to both poles. Yep. And there's not how much left. Um, we will put links into all the, the videos, um, the true North, the book, the big hill challenge, all that fun stuff for our uh, viewers to take a look at. Um, Hey, I just want to thank you for your time. I yep. appreciate it. This is, this is round two for a long, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to owe you and I have a, I have a, I have a funny feeling. I know what that's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll talk offline about yeah. that. All right. Uh, this is great, guys. Really appreciate the opportunity, and what you're doing is fantastic. Thank you very much. All right, Sean. Thank, thank you. you much. Yep.
tell your lovely bride we said hello and uh, good luck down at Killy this uh, this month. Yep. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, man. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Take care, guys. See you. See you.